Hey, everybody. Welcome. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of Alumless. I'm your host, Ryan Catherwood, and Alumless is a Chris Marshall Advancement Consulting production. On the show, we discuss alumni and donor engagement strategies and other trends in university advancement. Thanks to all of our listeners who are tuning in and make Alumless part of your work week or every other work week, as the case may be. Today, we're broadcasting live as we often get a lively discussion going on LinkedIn comments. Please be sure to say hello, uh, introduce yourself in the comments, and don't hesitate to ask Chris or myself a question. Better yet, ask a question to today's special guest, Nancy Merritt, Vice Chancellor for Alumni Relations at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, if we can't get to your question during the LinkedIn Live show, we'll be sure to ask it during the bonus segment we air each week on the podcast version of Alumnus. Okay, that is enough preamble. Let's go ahead and bring in Chris to the stream. Hey, Chris. Hey, Ryan. How are you, man? Good to see you again. Good to see you. We actually had the chance to hang out in, in person this week, which was fun. I always love it when we get a chance to connect yeah. yep. uh, for work. And actually, it was, it was kind of a birthday week in your household, in my household, um, uh, you know, we've got, uh, my wife and Catherine, my wife, Catherine, uh, and daughter Liv both had birthdays and uh, your son, Jack had a birthday. What's, what's going on at the Marshall residence? It's birth, uh, day, week, and month when you're 12. Anyway, it was, uh, <laughs> we had a lot going on. Today's the big birthday though. We have, he's got a bunch of his school classmates. His school starts next week, but he invited his school classmates and it's Dave and Buster's day. Uh, so we're going to play some games today. It'll be fun. <laughs> that sounds better than Chuck E. Cheese, you know? I, I feel oh, like yeah. this is the upgrade, big time. Big that's time. definitely an upgrade. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you guys are going there. I think my daughter's having a sleepover tonight, which will be nice. fun. Nice. Like three or four uh, three or four other girls her age. She's eight. But, um, well, we, you know, we had a chance to, uh, you know, connect in Raleigh-Durham uh, this week for an opportunity to work with our friends at Duke. And I think... Uh, we try not to discuss too much about sort of the business side of CMAC, but I think listeners want sometimes to get at least a little insight in what it's like working with consultants like us. Uh, it's always great to have the chance when we meet up in person to do our work in person versus, you know, virtually. Um, and we're involved in a review project at Duke, and we did some discovery interviews. Uh, later in the year, we'll be doing some strategic planning work. Um those two things often go together, right? Sort of a yeah. review and then strategic planning. How do you think about that type of, that aspect of the consulting work we do? Just just a quick overview. We do about you know 40 different types of projects, but there are four that make up about three quarters of our work, which are the one you mentioned, the review, where we look under the hood and either look at the overall program or a specific area. Um, we do strategic planning, as you mentioned. We do survey work where we can conduct attitudinal studies of staff or alums or both. And then um, we do a lot of ongoing coaching, counseling work where we'll sort of be almost like a monthly retainer-like kind of thing. We're just on call for issues that they're facing. And uh, in this case, as you said, the the it's not unusual for an institution to say, let's come in, look under the hood, give us a review, give us an objective third-party look at kind of how we're doing. And we provide them a document that sort of walks through a series of observations, recommendations, uh, which will often lead then to the next step. It's either either a survey happens next where we ask alums how they feel about th their attitudes towards the institution. And then we'll um, the last step could be uh, often is a strategic planning project where we look at building a either university or college wide strategic plan to help 
implement an alumni engagement strategy for the institution. Um, and I be believe strongly in that work happens with many, many partners across campus. It's not just what's happening in the central office. It's happening all over the campus and trying to coordinate all that as part of the process we take people through in our strategic planning work. So, yeah, yeah and, uh, and long answer to your question, but that's how it works for us. <laughs> yeah. And, and sometimes we do what's like an executive review, which is yeah, kind of a yeah. quick sort of quick look, yep. like a real fast sort of flash look under the hood. How long do those types of projects take? Uh, three to six months. I mean, it depends on the project and the size of the institution and how deep they want us to look. You know, the mile wide, mile deep is a, typically a three to six month project. The executive assessment you described can be done in you know one or two months for a quick look at it. Strategic planning can take anywhere from six to 12 months, again, depending on size and scope. So, you know, they're usually in that range typically. Well, and, and so we get into lots of deep conversations about alumni and donor engagement strategy with the, the folks we work with, which is great. I mean, I, I know you you enjoy the work as, as much as I do. And we get deep inside sort of the deliberations, right, of what universities are thinking about and what's what's happening at the core of sort of the transformation that's happening around our field. What are some of the themes that sort of come to mind when you think about how advancement organizations have been sort of evolving at this moment? Yeah, I think I think the biggest one for me, there are many trends you can point to. We've done sessions on them, right? So in a short answer, I'll give you the one that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about and clients are asking about her is this whole notion around alignment. And just use that word, but you can think about it with alignment in a more integrated advancement model where the alumni role is more connected to the development role than ever before. Um, that's the typical one you see, but you were also seeing a lot of places where they're combining alumni engagement and annual giving, for example. There's been a, you know trends in our industry that have gone up and down in this, and we're back at a trend where more schools are looking at that model of putting those two broad-based um, approaches, engagement and annual giving together. But you're also seeing um, alignment around donor relations. We have a client we talked to a few weeks ago where they're combining donor relations, annual giving, communications, and alumni engagement all under a new associate vice chancellor. Um, but but the, the one I like to think about most is is the alignment. Well, well, before I go there, the one that your your background is, is around careers. We're seeing that happening sporadically throughout the industry as well, where they're combining in a career services shop under the advancement operation, often combined with alumni engagement. Um, yeah. We just we know of one recently that the career person, I think it was Washington and Lee University, yeah. University yeah, just yeah. took their career person and put them overseeing both career and alumni, for example. Yeah. So it's not unusual. But the one I like to think about most is the one that thinks you think about your integration with all the work that happens across the university. How can alumni engagement play a role to support enrollment, retention, career related activities that we just mentioned and and in fundraising, of course. So um, the most sophisticated programs I've seen out there and um, I'll put in plugs later on, but um, are the ones that integrate across the institution where it's it's where we, we rely on alumni to help us drive priorities and the vision for the institution. That's the high, highest evolved models I've seen are in that category. And, and along the way, you know, I think shops are thinking about how do we refresh the programming as well, right? Yeah. How do yeah, we exactly. thinking, yes, high level, but then we're thinking about the evolution of some of the more beloved programs on campus, right? Or in, how to you know, stop doing one thing in order to add a new program right. of exactly. one sort or yeah. another, right? Um, and some, you know, we, I think, you know, there is a lot of emphasis in our line of work around traditions, right? And 
um, those really beloved experiences on campus. There's there have symbols built into them, right? They're often large celebrations, and uh, you know I think that part of the evolution of our work is thinking about well, what's next for our beloved traditions? And we have just the guest uh, <laughs> on our show to Perfect talk person. about. Uh, those beloved traditions, modernizing alumni traditions, and uh, let's let's go ahead and bring today's special guest into the stream. Hello, Nancy Merritt. How are you? Hello, I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. Nancy is the <laughs> vice chancellor of alumni relations at the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome to the show. Uh, and you. I should say that although you and I just met for the first time, literally nine, 10 minutes ago, you and Chris kind of go way back. I, I thought it would be a good place to start just sort of sharing, you know, the connection that you guys have. What's your origin story with Mr. Marshall? <laughs> so I was 17 years old on a pool deck in Painesville, Ohio. And uh, Chris Marshall was there to recruit his next class of swimmers at Lehigh University. And I it was on my radar as a school I was, you know, interested in. Um, but then I met Chris Marshall at the swim meet and I was like, I got to apply. So, um, so I always say he recruited me to come to Lehigh for swimming. And then he recruited me to work in alumni relations because after, uh, so my sophomore year, more year at Lehigh is when Chris left the head swim coach position and became the executive director at the Alumni Association at Lehigh. And I needed a work-study job, <laughs> and Chris hooked me up. And that is the, be that is the beginning. Yeah. Ryan, six years later, she was sitting in what was my office after I left to go into Cornell. <laughs> she had my job in six years like that. That's how good she is. <laughs> Well, sounds like there was some um, some really serendipitous timing there in a couple different respects. Uh, so that's fantastic, and congratulations on on your career so far. Of course, uh, going then from Lehigh to to Pittsburgh, and there was a stop in between, right? Did you were at uh, yes, Carnegie, I was Mellon? At Carnegie Mellon? So yeah. um, so I worked my way around and up the organization at Lehigh, and then in 2014. Um, made the move to Carnegie Mellon and worked in their alumni association. And Perfect. then in 2019, just moved down the road, just down the road to University of Forbes Pittsburgh. Avenue, right? Yeah. We're, we're literally next door neighbors. I have been to the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I have been inside the Cathedral of Learning. Yeah. Uh, I, I almost went to graduate school at the University mm -hmm. of Pittsburgh, a little known story, but so I had spent a day there, a beautiful campus. It was really fun to visit. But let's dig into alumni traditions a little bit. Um, maybe you could sort of paint a picture of the special traditions and symbols that exist at, at Pitt and sort of get, a, get us sort of thinking about traditions again. Yeah. Um, so because you mentioned the Cathedral of Learning, I'll, I'll talk about that one first as far as traditions and symbols are concerned. So it is our iconic building on campus. It is technically the second largest academic building in the world, the largest in the Western hemisphere, but that doesn't sound as cool. Um, and, uh, you know, traditionalists will call it the cathedral of learning or just the cathedral, the cool kids, the younger folks like to call it Kathy. There's a hot debate 
around that uh, <laughs> and the alumni community. Um, but one of the other traditions that involves the cathedral is uh, it's called the victory lights. So um, when the football team wins or if Pitt uh, wins a national championship, there's a huge light that just beams from straight up from the top of the, the cathedral and you can see it all around Pittsburgh. It's super cool. Um, and there's also this other phrase that's a huge tradition here called, or people say hail to Pitt or H2P for short. And it's like a greeting. You, you see someone wearing Pitt gear, you say H2P or hail to Pitt. I close all of my speeches saying hail to Pitt sign all of my emails, H2P. It's a huge thing here. Um, but the, the biggest tradition, the oldest tradition at Pitt, which I'm talking about today, is um, it's called Lantern Night. So on August 28th, we will be celebrating our 102nd Lantern Night. Um, and what this tradition, it started out in um, 1921, the first dean of women, there was a dean of women, at um, University of Pittsburgh back then. She convened all the incoming female students and held a ceremony called Atlanta Night. And for decades following that, um, alumni would pass on the light of learning onto the next generation of female Pitt students. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a great way for alumni to be involved as well um, because they would actually physically pass on the light of learning, light the incoming students' lanterns. Um, so there was some pomp and circumstance around it. Um, and then in 2021, so last year, we made the move to, to actually, instead of it being a tradition just for our incoming female students, we broadened it to include all incoming students. So that was, as you can imagine, a big change. <laughs> yes. And um, mo so modernizing that tradition probably had its challenges then, and as well as uh, probably ultimately a, uh, a success story behind it. How do you know when uh, to make changes on a program? How did you know that you needed to update that, that particular program? So this, so I joined Pitt in 2019. So I was able to experience the 99th Lantern Night um, and it was a beautiful ceremony. Um, we had roughly 1,200 female students there. Um, I guarantee they will remember that, uh, that experience for the rest of their life. It was very moving. Um, but, um, you know, after the ceremony, I started having conversations with my staff members, with um, my alumni board members, and just honestly asked a lot of questions, right? So, you know, we do this wonderful ceremony that's very labor and resource intensive for the incoming female students. But what do we do for everyone else that's excluded from participating in this? And, you know, what do we do about students who are non-binary? Um, what do we do? Like, how do we even invite people? Who gets invited? Um, do we have the data to support that? Um, so asking a lot of questions, um, after that event, and then inviting more conversation around it, right? Um, and I think I had the benefit of being a fresh set of eyes to, to take a look at the tradition. Um, and 
Yeah, I wasn't necessarily emotionally invested in it. Like I know a lot, a lot of alumni tend to be with um, certain traditions. So, um, so just having a lot of discussions with people who care deeply about the university, about the alumni association and about this tradition. And then, um, you know, 2020 came around, obviously um, a lot happened that year mm -hmm. and our whole country had a lot of reckoning. Um, but after, um, after George Floyd's murder, the, the alumni board decided to convene a task force <clears throat> called the Equity and Social Justice Task Force. And um, one of the main themes that we focused on, um, well, so the group was charged to define what equity and social justice even means for alumni relations, but then also to take a look and assess our, the, the PAA's current programming and operations and make recommendations for how we could be more equitable and just. So part of that conversation led to a lot of conversation around belongingness and inclusion. And then when we look at our traditions, we were looking at Lantern Night um, specifically um, you know, we were able to apply those discussions and principles to Lantern Night. So it kind of was a natural evolution of, I, you know, I didn't, when I came to Pitt, I didn't have plans to change right. a, a major tradition, right? Um, but mm -hmm. it kind of, I, I would say the times warranted it. And at the same time, Nancy, um, if you don't mind, Ryan, real quick, uh, yeah. the 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 notion of at your homecoming event having a king and queen became an issue as well. And right, I remember that that might have happened even before the lantern night change. I may be wrong yes. about that, but yeah, yeah. So, um, and that was another conversation we had with this group, right? And, and it was a conversation around the concept itself of homecoming king and queen maybe being a little antiquated. Um, also binary, right? It's part of the same conversation. And so, um, and, and really because it, it, just the branding of it as homecoming king and queen, um, like people had a preconceived notion of what it was. If you asked any, any average student, like, who are you, why are we recognizing these two individuals? They would say, oh, it's just a popularity contest, right? Yeah. Whereas, Pretty the popular, alumni, right? Right, <laughs> whereas the Alumni Association actually had criteria and wanted to recognize um, students for their efforts for like building community, fostering community on campus um, to inspire you know, continual engagement. That was totally being overshadowed because we had this branding of homecoming king and queen. So we kind of, we just rebranded it. There's still homecoming court, but it's uh, now called the Spirit of Pitt Awards. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, uh, my guess is you got some pushback from this uh, along the way. Now. I'm familiar with a little bit of it, but not as much as you are. So you want to share a little bit about what you, you know, I'm sure you had criticism of being the woke university in Pittsburgh and all that that comes with it, but. There was, was that, some that, of that. There was some conservative mm, newspaper that said not nice things about me, and I was okay with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I getting to Lantern Night specifically. So in 2020, Lantern Night, what we did because we couldn't have the like actual big events that we would normally have, right? Because of COVID, COVID right? So what we did instead is um, we, it was the 100th Lantern Night. So we branded these um, 
battery operated candles because you can't have real candles in, in the dormitories. But we, we um, branded these candles for Lanternite, gave them to every single incoming student and asked them to put it in their, the windows of their residence halls to kind of symbolize that community and camaraderie <clears throat> as a class. And then um, that was not controversial, right? Everyone was like, we were in the pandemic, everyone wanted to try and do whatever we could to, to show connection to each other. So in 2021, we actually, we, we invited both the freshman and sophomore classes to participate since technically the class of 2024 didn't have their lantern night. Right, they missed it, right? Yeah. Um, and then we also invited all students. And so, you know, a lot of the, it was a lot of communications, a lot of, you know, figuring out who are the people before we make this announcement, who are the people we need to communicate with first that we know are probably going to be um, more sensitive to this news, to this right. change. And then, um, you know, once once we communicated it, obviously there were um, a handful of people that were not very happy. Like one actual quote I got from someone was, I don't care about inclusion. And then I said, <laughs> we're going to have to disagree on that point. <laughs> so, you know. Um, but it was actually all like very civil, right? Like nothing, right. no one was irate. No one was protesting outside my office necessarily. But I mean, people feel very deeply to this tradition, like right. again, uh, many traditions. And so they, they understood the rationale behind the changes because we tried to communicate that to them. Um, but they don't have to like it. Right. So mm -hmm. Let's talk about sort of the role of traditions a little bit. You know, Chris, um, do all schools need traditions programs? Um, what schools shouldn't focus on building traditions? Is Should there be a, a leveling off of our focus? on How do you think about traditions and what schools are, are best served really focusing on them? Yeah, the traditions fall into the category. If someone in my, when I worked at Lehigh and at Cornell, if somebody on the team came to me and said, or I asked the question, why are we doing this? If the answer was only because we've always done it that way, my head would explode. And so traditions for tradition's sake aren't the answer. But to your question, I, I think everyone should have some form. If you don't have them, creating them is not that difficult. There are ways to create traditions. You do it a couple of times and tell everybody we've always done it, and pretty soon everybody will believe it. And you go through a four-year cycle. You know, introduction of student, you know, in an on-campus residential setting. I know we have, you know, and shout out to the folks on the on the chat. By the way, Dan, good to see you on there, and Lola, thanks for your comments, and Rebecca. Rebecca, right? I think we're good to have you on here as well. Um, we different types of institutions are going to are going to watch this, and some of them are going to have a harder time with it. If you don't have a football program, having a homecoming around, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that that make them difficult. But there are ways to create them, especially if they're going to be ones that welcome people to the community. And I think the most important part of it is in an inclusive way. If you do it, and you and it's just a certain segment of a population. It's it to me. Those are the ones that need to get changed immediately and, and adapt and, and modernize. But I do think they're important. I do think every institution should create if they don't have them, create them, um, and be inclusive in the work. Uh, and and it doesn't always in. have to be. It doesn't always have to be. Um, it could be like career related, like a tradition, right. something that happens. Exactly. Doesn't necessarily have to be about the symbols or sacraments or 
Exactly. Of, uh, yeah, I like that. I like different. That. It could be just something you do in, on an annual basis. I like Dan's is, comment I, real quick, Ryan. Dan's comment. Yeah. Do it once, it's an event. Do it twice, it's a tradition. I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> Elise Betts at uh, Penn says it takes five years to build a tradition. Yeah. And they, they had a really interesting program that for them starts with an aerial photo of every Incoming uh, freshman class, class on yeah. the football field, right? And mm -hmm. build into the student experience as a you know, a, a progression of traditions all the way through into the alumni. Uh, That's what their program is called. It's called Penn Traditions. And if you don't mm -hmm. know it, go online right now and Google it and look at it. And I, I think it's one of the best um, teaching students to be alumni programs that I've seen out there. <laughs> Planting the seed, as they say. Uh, Nancy, let's talk about all large on-campus events in general. I think when we think of traditions, we do think about sort of the big celebratory homecoming reunions, uh, things of that nature. As we you know, think about ways to scale up and engage more people, what do you think about in-person events as, uh, or even like sort of the big ones as a, a really important part of the portfolio of alumni engagement? Or should we be thinking about them differently moving forward? I. I I think, um, so having been at three different institutions, I think the in-person experience still is important, will always be important, but kind of the, how much emphasis you put on that is uh, proportionate to like the culture of the institution, as well as how much, Chris was talking about alignment earlier in a different way, but how, how much you can align those um, big, large-scale in-person experiences to your goals and to your values, right? So, um, so you know, previously being at CMU, um, they are known to be very techy, very innovative, very, they love their online programming, right? Um, and like one of their stories was they actually had a football game in the 90s and they tried to get people to go to it and they gave away floppy disks and everyone showed up right so that just to paint a picture right so <laughs> so so their their kind of portfolio of programming is probably going to look a little different than a university of pittsburgh where you know acc school big in athletics people love the tailgates love homecoming um and so so it's a matter of I think looking at what kind of currently exists um, and, you know, assessing it, trying to look at it through fresh eyes, assessing how much it's aligned um, to meet your goals. If you can make tweaks to better align and, and meet your goals, um, but also look at what's missing. So one thing I, when we drafted our strategic plan um, and we worked with Chris on that um, several years ago, uh, Pitt actually does not have a traditional reunion program, which um, I think is uh, is a hard. It, it's it's definitely a gap, I would say, in our alumni programming. So it's not going to happen overnight necessarily. We're we're putting a plan in place to kind of build up to a reunion program, but there's a lot of things that you can do um, around a traditional reunion program that will help meet your you know, data update goals, potential fundraising goals, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Chris, uh, during your t uh, tenure as alumni leader at, at Lehigh and Cornell, uh, what was your favorite tradition that you that you helped develop or modernize? And, and then if you could carry us out to, into our bonus segment by sharing uh, what's happening next, it's hard to believe we're bumping up against our half an hour here already. Yeah. 
Great, great conversation, Nancy. Thank you. Um, so, so real quick, though, my opinion of on-campus or large-scale events is that's where you look at building depth of engagement. Breadth of engagement can happen in lots of ways through electronic, Zoom, et cetera, but depth where you want the right people to be involved in that activity is where you're going to deepen that. My favorite one was a, was the ultimate seed planting event is at, was at Lehigh. We did a first-year student um, alumni rally where we welcomed the incoming freshman class, and there was a 70-year um, tradition, something like that, where the 50-year the reunion class adopts the incoming class. And the line that I... It started, the class of 1899 adopted wow. the class of 1949. That was the yeah. first year it started. So it goes way, yeah. hundred and something yeah. years in. Yeah, it's even longer. Yeah. But there was a line at the end of the of the intro where the president of the class would say, you know, the class of 19 whatever adopted us. We're adopting you in 50 years. You're going to adopt the next class. We won't be around. Tell them we said hello. It's like this long lineage thing. It's just this cool deepening the or planting that seed hopefully and then deepening it that's my favorite rally and then to to to, to your point uh, we're going to wrap up here in just a minute Ryan let you close this out fully but uh, uh Nancy thank you for being with us great conversation we're going to have another 30 minutes uh, on our uh podcast we're we're going to be trying in the next few weeks to get that uh we've had some logistical challenges getting Sue Cunningham who's the president of Case who we're going to give her a pass on doing it live. We're probably going to find that any half hour she's available and record a session with Sue. That's coming up. We're probably going to skip the Labor Day weekend Friday and go right to September 16th, where we're going to bring in some colleagues that I work with. Uh, and Ryan, you're going to start working with too, uh, Bonnie Devlin and Karen George, who are the uh, principal uh, managing principals of Washburn McGoldrick, a partner company with CMAC, talking about broad advancement issues that we're facing as an industry. So good, good one coming up again in a couple of weeks. Yes, extremely exciting to have Bonnie and Karen on. Hopefully we can uh, find a chance to have uh, a connection with Sue. I know she's, I think her assistant said she's traveling for, you know, four, every of the next 14 weeks, like every multiple times a week. And so it's just tough to find some of those spots to, uh, to, to book it in. But thanks for everyone for listening to the LinkedIn Live version of Alumnus and see you on the podcast. We're going to hop off now and... Be sure to subscribe and uh, listen to the rest of the conversation with uh, myself and Chris and Nancy. Keith, right, good luck tomorrow. Time. I saw your chat comment, Keith. <laughs> the Lehigh event I just described, yeah. Keith, who's on, is executing that event tomorrow night. So <laughs> it's a big yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah. That's, that was kind of meta, right? Keith, your favorite event. We have a listener who's actually putting that on right now. Putting so it on, right. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Keith, for joining us. And uh, to the rest of you for listening, we will be back on the podcast. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Okay, we are back. This is the bonus section of Alumnus, which is we record sort of after our live stream version. We have found a nice quiet Zoom room, which we like to do and how continue our discussion with Nancy Merritt, who is Vice Chancellor for Alumni Relations at the University of Pittsburgh. One thing before we get started, how do you decide as a university whether it should be chancellor or president? That's a great in the, question. In the, lex, in the lexicon, like why vice chancellor instead of vice president? Any ideas, Chris? Just I think the only one I can point to, which is probably some truth to this, is that in larger 
systems. There's a president of a system and there's often chancellors of the campus. So UCLA, or I'm sorry, UC Office of the President has 10 campuses. Each of them have a chancellor, UCLA being one of them. And I think early on, Pitt's connection to the state system was stronger, probably had a president and thus the chancellor. That's my prediction, but I can't confirm it. <laughs> so that's interesting because Pitt's actually the opposite, right? So we have a chancellor <laughs> who oversees the entire uh University of Pittsburgh system, but then the, uh, the people who lead the campuses are called. Oh, campuses. it's the opposite. Yeah. It's really yeah. cool. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So you, you have three campuses, right? Four. Well, Four. so we have our Pittsburgh campus, one in Johnstown, Bradford, Greensburg, and Titusville. All of them have presidents. And then the chancellor who I've met is the chancellor of the whole shebang. Got it. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Okay, cool. So nice. maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I think it's something to do with that. That's that sort of the alignment between state systems and and so on, or is sort of how that. I've, I've never wanted. I've always sort of wondered that, but never actually asked it. Now I've asked it on the air, kind of right. And I feel we're like gonna we're going to have to get some there. research and give the <laughs> actual uh, answers. <laughs> we should do some research. I should have had my researcher dig that up for me in advance of the podcast, and would have been ready with it. But um, so let's talk a little bit. You guys know each other well, right? And uh, Chris, uh, you actually had Nancy as your direct report uh, uh, for a little while. Each of you tell the listening audience a little story about uh, working for Chris or having you know Nancy working for you uh, and on that team at Lehigh. I'll let you go first. Nancy. Oh, I got to go first. Okay. So I would just say in general, one thing that I always appreciate about Chris is that he always challenges you. Um, and 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 I'll speak for myself. In, in my case, he believed in me more than I believed in myself sometimes. And I can just remember like this weird, um, like I still, it, it's still very fresh in my mind today. So I think it was when I was a, technically a grad assistant. Um uh, so I wasn't fully a staff member yet in the Alumni Association. And there was a senior farewell event that the Alumni Association was hosting. And um, the person in charge of our regional clubs couldn't be at the event. So Chris is like, well, Nancy, you just do it. And he's like, <laughs> I don't want to talk to people. <laughs> and and I, um, I, it was probably terrible. I probably like went up there and and started the entire time and then like ran off the stage. But like after that, I was like, I, I don't know why I was so nervous. Yeah, so, she, she was amazing. I remember that exact event and she was amazing, which is what I was fully expecting. Why I asked her to do it. And I think it just gave you more comfort, Nancy, to do them in the future. Yeah. He always, he was always doing things like this to me though. Cause even there was a, a board meeting and you had to be sick you, I'm sure it was on purpose just so I could actually do stuff at this meeting. Right. Um, no, but he, we had a new um, VP for advancement and Chris was supposed to introduce him. And then because he wasn't there, I had to do it. And I, there, like little things like that. He was always like pushing me to do more. Yeah. Well, that's good. I, I, that's, you know, sounds like a, you're getting a great report from Jennifer last week, Chris, uh, Nancy <laughs> this week. Uh, we're just, Trying to stroke your ego a little bit. Yeah, I never, well, thanks. Thanks, Ryan. And Nancy and Jennifer from last week. But I never thought of myself as like, I don't think of myself as the boss, right? Or, or like even working with you, Ryan. I, I say yeah. we work together, which is how we, we do this together. Something we work on together. And, I, you know, I happen to be the leader, but, the, you know, I think the best leaders can empower their best people to do the things that they 
the leader knows that they can do, and maybe they don't on the on the staff side, but on the other side of that coin. But Nancy, I'll tell you my story about Nancy. She so she's one of the smartest people, funniest, one of the greatest laughs. If you put Julie Sina and Nancy Merritt on a webinar together, we would be able to just listen to them laughing. At Let's do it. Let's have a laugh off. Let's make we'll have happen. a laugh off. The two of them have the best laughs. Um, uh, but one of the strongest leaders I've ever seen, too. I saw that when she was a student in high school, you know, watching her on the deck with her teammates. But when she came a freshman on the team, she became a leader very quickly. Um, and that's something that I recognized right away. And leadership's always been something I'm sort of a student of um, and can recognize it in people. Nancy had that in many, many ways. My favorite story about Nancy, we, we've known each other for 25 years. I think it's, it's crazy. So whatever it is. Um, and uh, Nancy's married to another former swimmer of mine. They met uh, in the program. It's one of 13 swimming couples that I know of that out there under me that I'm to blame or credit for. Uh, <laughs> uh, two beautiful boys uh, who I've gotten to know and think of them like my nephews. And you know, so we're, we're very close. But my favorite Nancy story of all time, though, is her first year at Lehigh. We were um, in contention to win for the first time ever the the league champ, Patriot League championship. That includes Army and Navy and some really really top programs. And we were, and on the night before the meet started, I I dared challenged Nancy and her her roommate teammate because all the men, by the way, in the swimming situation, shave their heads bald for the championship meet. It's like a thing. Why so not I just wear a cap? Okay, for the chat. All right, I'll buy that. It's, right? it's this. It's a psych. It's a tradition. It's a, yeah, it's a tradition. There you go. <laughs> and not everyone did it, but of the four, 17 swimmers, I think fourteen did it. So it was like you, we have a ball team coming out. A little bit of intimidation factor there too. So anyway, so on the way off to the coaches' meeting the night before, the men were getting ready and getting their heads shaved, and I said to Nancy and her teammate Lindsay, "Why don't you guys shave your head? It'll be a real good message to the women's team." We looked at each other. And I came back from the meeting a few hours later, and there they were, two bald women standing in the hallway of the hotel. <laughs> it was the coolest thing. <laughs> and, and the women won. They, they went on to win the championship that year. It was awesome. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. Oh, man. I have a photo of it. We can pull it up in post-production, Ryan. Ryan, we put it up in the in the uh, in the podcast. <laughs> let's let's do that. That's that sounds fantastic. Let's um sort of return to our yeah. conversation of alumni traditions, large events, and sort of continue on. And then um, Nancy, maybe sort of talking about uh, traditions and their role within the portfolio of programs there at the University of Pittsburgh. You know, so how do you think about them, resource them, um, and sort of other types of programs there? You know, if you're advising your, your eventual replacement on traditions at Pitt, you know, how do you, what, what might you say about how much of a focus they should spend on, on traditions? Yeah. So, you know, the, the great thing about traditions is they connect generations together, right? Yeah. And so they are also very useful in creating a sense of identity, a sense of community. And so for those reasons in particular, traditions I find to be most useful related to like student alumni programming, right? And plus, I just think like students like being at a place that has some, some sense of tradition. So, um, but similar to what I was saying about um, in-person large-scale events too, is like it needs to be proportional to the culture of your program and and to your you know ultimate goals and 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 metrics too. So 
um, you know, traditions that are, and Chris said this earlier as well, like tradition for the sake of tradition. I, I find people who, who fall in that realm, or they're the ones who are most resistant to change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of, um, you know, being a little more thoughtful and strategic about how traditions can be leveraged to, you know, really um, impact alumni engagement. There, yeah. there are many alumni programs out there that I that I describe as having the binder mentality, where everything they do is a tradition because they literally pull out the binder off the shelf, and it's the wash, rinse, repeat from what they've done every year before. And there's no innovation, no change, and it's like because it worked before, it's going to keep working forever mentality. And that's something that sometimes those things that have worked forever are the right thing, but there's other reasons besides just, but there are many, many of them on that list that I say, through. I mean, literally when I got to the job at Lehigh, I had them clean out the file cabinets in the office and either throw it away or put it in some long-term storage. Cause we're not going to be going to the cabinets and pulling them out anymore. We're going to rethink these things. Mm-hmm. So do all programs have a shelf life? You know I mean? Like, mm. is there, is there any program that should not be, revamped or dismantled after a certain number of times uh, how, how do you think about that hard question so it goes to nancy automatically oh. <laughs> <laughs> i think about this in the context you know yeah. I, there's a program that i, I sort of launched at, at my previous employer along with it was a micro volunteering program one hour a month it was called and and by the time we had done it five years right it was kind of clear that it needed innovation or it needed a whole new direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it just was, you know, the concepts were good and they worked, but they didn't continue to grow and and take, it didn't continue to you know, grow level year after year after year. It kind of planed off a little bit. And I sort of, how do you know when it's time, you know, it's it's reached a, the end of its natural life, some uh, one program or another? So I don't know. The one tradition that I'm thinking about here, too, that we've kind of out of necessity because of COVID um, revamped. So we had many institutions had this like dinner with 12, you know, between students and alumni. And um, and I would say it was it kind of plateaued. It was maybe a little stale as well. And so, you know, we were always going to the same well of like potential hosts and we weren't necessarily engaging new people. Um, And so this past year, my team member who's responsible for it, she actually, because we tend to look at things too through like the lens of alumni instead of the lens of students. And so um, what she was saying is students don't actually want to sit through a dinner. They're like a little nervous, like pandemic aside, like they want something that's a little more um, asynchronous, something where like if you have that chatty person who is just taking over the conversation and they don't know how to insert themselves in right like something they needed they wanted the outcome of like being able to connect and network with alumni in a meaningful way but the dinner wasn't necessarily the mechanism they were looking for so they did um they hosted it through our online community mentorship program it's called pick commons here um and formed groups but it was like instead of a one evening thing it was also like maybe two weeks long, asynchronous, like someone was um, starting conversations um, and being like really intentional to make sure people were connecting. Um, 
but the students rated that experience way higher than the last time we did wow. it. Wow. So it's just, you know, adapting a tradition to meet the needs and the times is something that we're talking about here. And Ryan, to my answer to your general question would be this, is that your Longwood example is a great one. You knew the data. You knew that the data was declining. You knew that because you were looking at this metrics, right? And we got to use data to make these decisions. There are some where, where that that drop might take years and it's okay to keep doing it because you're engaging a group of people. I think of things like, you know, reunion parades. Um, a lot of the on-campus Northeast schools do parades and have done them for a century or decades. And the only one that I think I can point to that's probably worth keeping, <laughs> I may be going too far with that, but uh, the ones that I'm aware of, certainly, you know, most of them are, are probably at that moment where it's probably time to hit the eject button. But Princeton has developed a tradition around their P-Raid, they call it, where it's 25,000 people from the community, um, from the alumni, from students who attend that event. And it is awesome. If you've never been to one, it's just a spectacle they have to see. So that's been going on for 100 years or more. Will it be going on 100 years from now? You know, it'll be hard one to get rid of. That's for sure, because it has an impact. For, uh, for but, they, but they know that data point. They know what the impact that it's having. So to me, it all goes back to RO. E, if you will, return on engagement, return on investment, ROI, are things that we should be looking at, not just going on our gut and saying, yeah, that's we've always done. It. Let's just keep doing it. It's got to be based on data. Yeah. Because I think one thing that happens at sort of our broad-based event strategies, whether they're regional or uh, you know, campus, sort of the traditions around chapters, reunions, is that we tend to engage the same folks. Yeah. That's right. True. Uh, particularly in regionally, right? You've got your same core group of volunteer leaders who make up a regional board and their offshoot networks and and that those you know you don't get a lot of branching out uh and you tend to engage the same amount of that's not necessarily a bad thing right because we did talk about deepening engagement sure. with yep. individuals so which is is it good to have events when all the same people are coming year after uh, year uh, or not yeah my answer i love nancy to hear your thoughts on this my answer is we know that the data shows that if you go to one or two events, you're more likely to do other things, volunteer, get involved in other activities, go to other events, but also um, give. But we know that if it's beyond two, it actually starts to drop. The likelihood of someone being a donor goes down after like the third event. So when you get someone who's going to 10 different things, it's more likely given. that they're not a donor than because than, than, they're saying, I'm giving my time, I'm giving my expertise, I'm giving my talent. But but um, to me, that, that answer is a hard no, more is not always better. Yeah. What do you think, Nancy? I um I think there's certain there's certain things if you can facilitate help facilitate it with a, with a low amount of yeah. staff time, low resources. Yeah. What's the then investment? I think yes, by all means, like please gather in the name of Pitt. Um but if it's really labor intensive then, you know, I think it, you should definitely rethink it. So one one thing we saw, and we don't have a ton of data. So my guess was last year, we we had several like tailgate events um, regionally, and then pick won the ACC championship and then went to the Peach Bowl. So, so there was a lot of football happening last fall. And my guess was that a lot of people, it was a lot of the same people. It actually wasn't. So, um, you know, there's probably some happy 
medium where we don't have to do a tailgate for every single event. Um, and we just need to be a little more strategic about and, and look at our resources as well in the calendar. But um, but again, like to Chris's point, just using that data to to make your decisions. And I, I love your point too. If you're going to have a volunteer out there organizing and doing things on repeat and it's no or low cost in terms of any resource from you, by all means, go do right. it. We want volunteers doing that in the name of Pitt in this example. Go do it. But when there are high price, you know, venues and tents and tables and chairs and and lots of staff time and it's the same people over. That's where I put my hard no on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and, but yet so much of our muscle memory as practitioners is is built around those. And we've we've hired staff that are excellent at planning big events and events and events. It's sort of their core skill set. Right. And why they got into the work. And so sort of at an interesting um, it's sort of an interesting dynamic that exists. But um, Nancy, so as you you approach the start of a, a new semester, right, where uh, students, I imagine, have arrived now at, uh, at They're Pitt. moving in this weekend, yep. Okay, so getting ready for another fall. What uh, what keeps you up at night these days as you're thinking about some of the things that are an added stress on your, on your work or just things on your mind? So... Candidly, what's keeping me up at night is is also in some ways the same thing that's making me excited is so right now we have a lot of staff openings. We're trying to hire um, more people, which is great. Um, but also, you know, the, the people, the remaining staff um, right now, a lot has been on um this group of exceptional alumni relations professionals. And I just, I, so what's keeping me up at night is just making sure that they feel like they have the support um, that they need uh, to execute a very busy fall. Yeah. That's an idea for a future alumnus panel discussion with, I don't know who, but headhunters maybe of talking about that issue is talent recruitment and retention. Yes. Did a good, I did a good Protopia webinar on that. Um, that had a few, I had um, from Indiana University, William and Mary, and then um, Boyden, their search firm. And we talked about sort of the trends in advancement. But um, I think you're right. I think it's one of the hardest things. And I think it's what's probably keeping most alumni affairs professionals up at night is, you know, we were just uh, down at, at Duke and there's a campaign forthcoming eventually, right? And um, they got to staff way up. You know, everybody's trying to staff way up right? To um, reach goals and yet you're down already, right? right. So it's uh, <laughs> trying to recover and and the candidate pool tends to be a bit smaller, right? right. So it's, um, you know, it's an interesting dynamic at play. What what works for attracting candidates at to pit and uh, keeping them around? I think what, um, what we're finding is um, really through people's own networks, we're get, that's that's the most impactful um, to find really good qualified candidates. Um, that, you know, don't lose that. Don't lose your thought. But that point, I don't hear a lot of people saying, hey, staff, reach out to your networks and see if people are interested in coming here to pit. That's a great strategy right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so one thing I'll say too, um, one thing that, so the Alumni Association is part of the larger division of philanthropic and alumni engagement and uh, Chris Davitt. That's my, what Pitt calls advancement, philanthropic yes, and exactly. alumni engagement. 
Um, Chris Davitt is our senior vice chancellor, my boss, uh, and she's wonderful. But one of the things she wants to be really intentional about too is not just making sure we um, source a large qualified candidate pool, but a diverse Mm. pool as well. And um, one of the things we've uh, convened, we've chosen 10 staff members across the division to serve on this committee um, that at a certain level or above that like one, one or two of the committee members has to be involved in the interview process to kind of ask questions about DEI uh, aptitude awareness. And then um, also they're, they're helping source diverse candidates as well um, to enter the pool. So uh, it's brand new. Uh, we just started a, a couple months ago, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how that helps helps us. Yeah. It, I think the, the internship program or internships in general, right, where you're able to bring in undergraduate students like Chris had, you know, with with your role when you were uh, an undergraduate, right, sort of pipelining young talent right into those um, coordinator, assistant director roles, uh, because and with already some experience under their belt, you know, right, exactly. it seems like that the importance of the internship uh, within the alumni office is is really important at the moment. Nancy, your example of, of sourcing through your staff reminds me of there are take a page profit world. They actually give bonuses to mm-hmm. parent staff if they recruit a new person into the equation who ends up being an employee for you know, stays for a year, you get a five thousand dollar bonus. You know, that, that would be an incentive, something to think about. Yeah. But let me ask you, let's flip, flip for a little bit. We have some time left here, but Nancy, we often talk about all the things that we've done and done well and the successes and best practices, but we learn from our mistakes, right? We know that when something doesn't go well, we're going to learn a ton from it. Is there something that you could think of in your career, Lehigh, Carnegie Mellon, or at Pitt, where um, you, you, if you could call a do-over, <laughs> you would you would pick that one? Anything come to mind? That's such a good question. Uh, yeah, I often think about how I wish I had a time machine and like could just go back to Nancy Circa, whatever year, yeah, and like right. just be on my shoulder and. What do you think? Right, advice, right. <laughs> I I think honestly, like um, one of the lessons I um, I've tried to apply here at Pitt, and it took me some time to learn at Lehigh and. CMU is just um, like really realizing the importance of management um, and good management and challenging managers and people who think that they're good managers to be better managers um, because, um, you know, if you, if you, especially care about retention of team members, you have to understand how your managers throughout the team influence that. Um, And so it's something that I've been more intentional about here at Pitt than I probably, and I wish I was more intentional about in the past. Yeah. I, you know, I've gotten the chance to see you go through those. I know two examples where intentionality in your management has led to performance reviews and ultimately a departure of staff that if you didn't do that, then the staff who are performing at a high level are going, well, how come you not doing anything about that? Right. And you hold people accountable. That's what it boils down to. And that right. builds trust and, you know, builds the team and the culture. And you know, speaking of culture, I have one last question. I'll let Ryan close us out is you've also 
you know, something I've also admired about you is you've had this culture of being fairly innovative and, and entrepreneurial in the work that you've done in your career. How do you foster that growth of um, ideas and entrepreneurialism and thinking like that, innovation in general? That's for Ryan. No, I'm I'm looking oh, at you. At me. So it's funny, right? Because I've only my only career to date is in alumni relations. Um, and so I think, and I it, this is something I learned from you too, Chris, is when you surround yourself with good, diverse, innovative people who like to have fun, a lot of these ideas are almost like casual brainstorms, right? Like over yeah. lunch or something, right? I always think of, remember Tom Scalise in our team? Yeah. Tom would say, he was a graphic designer. He'd say, you never know where a good idea is going to come from. And he would pull these little 10 minute huddles together and somebody totally random, you know, sometimes it was an alum who happened to be in the office or the, or the admin assistant said, how about X? And we're like, yes, that's the answer right there. Right. So, um, so I just, I think it takes a bit of, you know, uh, self-awareness, certainly. Right. Um, and then intentionally surrounding yourself with people who are different, Hmm. um, so that you can come up with those really great ideas. Love it. Love it. Yeah, man, we we talk a lot about management, I think, couldn't we? My my brain was flying all over the place about um, the challenges of management I've I've faced in my own career. That what we're watching, you know, with our our CMAC partners and clients, uh, and uh, obviously the the thoughtful response you just gave about the importance of of management and and building a team, fostering a culture of innovation, and really leading programs forward into the future. Uh, well, it's been great to have you uh, on Alumless, Nancy. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I hope we can uh, get together more often. It's lovely to meet you. It's great meeting you, Ryan. And Chris, thanks for the invitation. Uh, thank you both for this was so much fun. Uh, love talking to you guys. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having Nancy. me. Chris, it was good to see you this week in person. And uh, we'll, we'll huddle up on, on Monday. Folks, thanks for listening. I'll be sure to uh, publish the podcast version in the feed. Uh, well, if you're listening to this, you're already listening to the podcast in your feed. <laughs> so you know when I've published it, but uh, we'll try to do that on uh, every uh, Monday afternoon at the latest or over the weekend after our, our show on Friday. So thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll be back in your feed with uh, the leadership from Washburn and McGoldrick in about a month's time, maybe with Sue Cunningham in the interim, if we can figure that out. But If not, have a a happy and safe Labor Day weekend, back to school for all the kiddos, and um, everyone be well and enjoy what is hopefully a cooling down of summer weather, a transition into the fall. All right. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks.